0: Good morning, guys. Happy New Year. Hey, on that note with regard to youth, just a couple quick things as well that Kyle had mentioned that, yes, we do jump back into youth this week. Um, as most of you guys know, I've been actually leading the youth group for the past couple months, and that's been awesome just to see what guys has been doing. I feel like there's been a really cool critical mass of uh, kiddos coming, and it's been awesome just to be able to teach. The man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is to the glory of God so that the son of God might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed to read in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live again. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary rose quickly to go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to continue to weep there. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. So the Jews said to him, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Last segment here, verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus then said, take the stone away. Martha and the sister and the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time, there's an odor for he's been in the tomb for dead. Uh, he's been in dead for four days. If you guys have a you know, noteworthy moment, if you have a old King James version right now, it says, he stinketh. He stinketh. <laughs> You're welcome. He stinketh. Verse 40. Jesus said to him, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said to the Father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people that are standing around so that they might believe that you sent me. When he said these things, Jesus cried out with an extremely loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Then Jesus said to him, "Unbind him and let him go. And this is the word of the Lord. Isn't that a great story? Did you like my little dramatic effect there? I woke you up because a couple of you guys fell asleep. But the point that I wanna make is this, this story is so good. And it's so lengthy, and there's so many movements in it and so many good parts. I don't want to glance over it. I don't want to just like rush through it, though we could. What I want to do is I want to, like I said, break this down into basically four weeks or four chapters or four movements or four stages, if you would. So again, let's go back to that slide. I'll kind of show you each of these stages that are there. Number one, what we will look at today is when God delays. Hopefully you guys already caught that when Jesus is confronted by this situation or he's given this news or this information, hey, your friend... Lazarus is dead. John, who's the storyteller in this, right? He's the one that wrote this, tells us this little bit of information. Jesus stays for two more days when he heard this. Like, that should be a head scratcher right there. And if you're kind of confused by that, you should be confused by that. It should cause you to ask the question, what's going on here? Why did Jesus do that? Doesn't somebody who loves somebody immediately respond? Well, that's how we think. Apparently, God has different Mindset. God has different ways of thinking and processing and working through uh, potential problems or troubleshooting through circumstances than we do. But what we will look at today is when God delays, kind of look at the subject that matter. Next, we'll take a look at when God invites. God, Jesus invites um, the people that are part of the story to respond to him, to trust him, to believe in him. Uh, the week after that, we'll take a look at when God displays emotion. We're told that little segment there where Jesus wept. It's the smallest verse in the entire Bible, but there's other elements or displays of God's emotion. I was going to say when God emotes, but I thought I'd choose when God displays emotion. I like the word emote, but um, you know m- might not have been the most appropriate word. But God shows. Jesus shows emotion. I don't know how you think about Jesus, what type of feelings that you think Jesus displays, but I hope you have one that is very deeply consistent with a God that is deeply familiar with human emotion. All the... Range of human emotions. And then lastly, we'll take a look at when God reverses death, or I was also thinking when God robs the grave. God robs the grave. God steals. God takes back from the grave that which does not actually belong to it, right? It's such an amazing story. So there we go. I want to take a look at specifically the idea of when God delays. First, before we jump in with every good story, I think it's always good to kind of pause and do a little bit of a reflection and ask a bigger question, like who are the main characters in the story that are kind of part of this? Again, the Gospel of John's awesome because the Gospel of John as a story is is filled with narrative, like what we just read here. It's kind of like, Typical story time, but then it's also filled with teaching and moments where Jesus gives monologue or sermons or preaches, uh, and then there's response and whatnot, but what I love about this is just like straight up story. So it's always good, especially when it's narrative, to ask the bigger question, like who are the main characters in this particular story? So we'll go through these real quickly. Number one, this guy named Lazarus. We don't know a whole lot about him. Eliezer would be his actual, like real biblical name. We call him Lazarus or you can call him Lazer, right? The idea is that he's, he's a part of the story. He was a friend of Jesus. Jesus loved him we were told about this, his sister named Mary. She also had another sister named Martha. If you notice the very first little segment, I think is verse 2, it says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord. So that whole little segment in verse 2 is basically a parenthetical statement. It's like John writes, and there's Lazarus, and then there's Mary. And by the way, this Mary is the Mary that anointed the feet of Jesus with oil. Now, again, if you've been following the story, uh, you know that John has not even told us that. So what's what I, you know, I'm kind of a Bible, Bible nerd when it comes to this type of stuff, so I'm always paying attention to this type of stuff. But I was like, man, if you're reading this through first time, you would have no idea who this Mary is. And the whole like, like head nod towards um, washing the feet of Jesus wouldn't make any sense, because that has not actually happened in the story yet. That doesn't come till, like chapter 12. But John's telling us this story, and he's like, hey, by the way, this is the Mary. Because why does John distinguish between Mary's? If you read the New Testament, there is a truckload of Mary's. I mean, there's a lot of Marys, right? And he's like distinguishing between the various Marys that play into the story. This particular Mary, this particular Mary had the reputation. This is cool, actually. She had the reputation of the one that was deeply devoted to Jesus. I love this. What's your reputation? Right? Don't, don't wear that too hard. Don't feel too heavily guilted from that. You shouldn't. But it's worthy of just asking, like, like, how... how, how am I known? How do I want to be known? These have been helpful, like, little, like, moments throughout my life to just kind of even ask bigger questions of, like, like, who am I as a follower of Jesus? How do others know me as a, follow, as a follower of Jesus? How do I really want to be known as a follower of Jesus? And I think, again, really, as we move on into this new year, it's worthy of just kind of pausing, reflecting, asking some of those questions. Like, like personally, I, I really, truly want to be known as someone that's deeply devoted to Jesus, I'm not always maybe known as that. I might be known as the guy that might drive fast down Los Valley Road and probably should slow down. Uh, I might be known for other things like not being the most nice guy out surfing in the water at certain lineups and whatnot. And my hope that would be that that would change and that I'm more kind and more gentle to people and caring and compassionate. But I truly want to be known as a person that's devoted to Jesus. And I love this about Mary, that she's known as one that's identified by her deep devotion to Jesus that she's willing to give this costly substance, which happens to be perfume. You know, she breaks open this extremely costly perfume, gives it to Jesus. So she's known as being extremely generous and extremely devoted to Jesus. Again, there's all sorts of questions as to why she had an encounter with Jesus that transformed her life. I think that's what happens. Man, when you are embraced or met or known or gripped by the love of God, it does something to you. You cannot get away from that. It changes you. It reshapes you. And again, when you think about like this is what Christianity is about. It's not about just adherence to a particular group of teachings or ideas or rules or regulations. Those all exist as a part of it. At its very core, it's about this deep relationship between a human being that's made in the image of God and God who made that human being. and And reflecting that, pressing into that uh, loving the God that has remade us and shaped us and has forgiven us and has cast a vision for us as to what that life could look like and should look like. It's about this relationship. That's what Mary embodied. Thirdly, we see Martha. We also see Jesus. And then we're told frequently of the, quote-unquote, the, the Jews. And uh, the, the word that's typically used there is a word that, uses, that gets used to describe or designate a group of uh, Judean Jewish people some of which can be religious leaders others of which are just part of the fabric of culture around there and they just happen to be bystanders in the particular story so that's basically the cast of characters i want to jump now in a little bit into sort of the plot uh, as we see this and one of the things that's awesome about the stories it's just it's it contains a lot of like movement a lot of kind of like plot twists and again let's take a look at some of those things so I'm going to look at really just four specific things that kind of capture my attention as I'm reading through this particular first stage or first scene. Number one, I see that Jesus actually speaks to the tragedy or speaks to the circumstance that formulates this tragedy here. Now, again, take a look at this. Uh, verse four, I'll just read it again. It says, uh, but when Jesus heard this, you know, remember he gets this news. Hey, by the way, your, your good friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus, when he hears this, he begins to speak into us. Listen to what he says, verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he, he said, this illness is not to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. What captures my attention about this is that Jesus has something to say about human suffering. So I want you to pause and think about this. Think about suffering maybe you've gone through or circumstances you've faced or people that you've watched or known that have gone through deeply tragic circumstances in life. It could be a breakdown of relationships. It could be a betrayal. It could be a diagnosis of some sort of uh, Disease, or whatever the case might be, it could be the fact that you might get evicted from your house or you're not going to be able to pay your bills, uh, your mortgage, all forms of tragedy that we oftentimes have befall us as human beings. What I think is important to know that God actually has something to say about that. And what Jesus says in this particular context, he says that this is really not an illness ultimately to death, um, though he does die again. There's lots of nuance that we can talk about within this context of the story in just a moment. But the point that Jesus, I think, really wants to drive home is that this ultimately is intended for the glory of God, that God is at work in this particular circumstance. And I think the challenge, really, for those that Jesus is addressing, as well as for us, you know, 2,000 years later, reading this particular story, that this story that we read here is not only the story of Lazarus, but in some ways, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is your story. Like you belong to this story. This story belongs to you. Like you stand on the shoulders of people that this has been their story, that whatever circumstances or tragedy or hardship that has fallen upon your lap, there's something about it that God says, this is for the glory of God. There's something about this circumstance that will be for the glory of God. And then later, again, Jesus is going to invite. And I'm not going to get ahead of myself. But Jesus' whole invitation is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? All right. I'll tell you real quickly. Um, you guys know, and thank you, by the way, for the many of you that have been praying. I thought I'd kind of give you guys a quick little update. Um, back in, I don't even know when it was. I feel like the last... Four months have been a big blur and I can't even remember timeline and conversations and whatnot. So if I've not responded to any texts or phone calls, whatever, I apologize for that. My brain has been really full. My wife was diagnosed a couple months ago with cancer breast cancer. And so we've been in this journey of having to deal with this and go through doctors and oncologists and surgeons and yada, yada, yada. And so as of uh, December 28th, I think that date's correct, um, my wife went in for surgery for a mastectomy. And it was down at Cottage Hospital down in Santa Barbara. And fortunately, that went really, really well. We're right now in the process of recovery. So we went for the one-week checkup, which would have been I don't know, three days ago, we, on Thursday, we went down there for the one-week checkup. After that, post-surgery, they kind of give you the uh, pathology report that makes sure that there's no other further or residual cancer. They just kind of give you a little bit of inf- info as to how the outcome of all that went. They check up just to make sure there's no, you know, I'll probably give you guys more information than you probably need to know that you really want, TMI. But the point of the matter is, like, make sure there's no further, like, um, infection and whatnot. And so at the end of the day, we got a really good, clean passing of health the doctor was like yeah it's awesome thank you thank you and so you know we sat there in in the in the room just like whoa i like cancer's gone like wow we, we've lived with this reality that that cancer is there <laughs> like like it's there um, and we have to do something about the cancer, and you know. Then the question becomes, how extensive is it, and how much of something do you have to do? Is it just surgery? Does surgery then lead into you know chemotherapy and blah blah blah, whatever? Um, but at that particular point, it was just re- the reality that the cancer had been removed, and that it's it, we're in a new. S- New season right now, new stage now of recovery and moving on into that. So, yes, um, my, my wife will be taking several weeks off. She won't be around just because she'll be in recovery mode. Um, perfect example, and I'll just end on this. But even things like yesterday, like making breakfast and walking quarter of a mile, three quarters of a mile, like that that's her, like, event for the day. <laughs> so afterwards, she's like, I'm, I'm tired. I'm ready to just do nothing for the rest of the day. And so that's hard for her. If you know my wife, she's the type of person that loves being active, love, being in relationship with people. So she's in a state right now where that's, that's not an option right now. So she's learning to come to terms with that. But here's the big thing I wanted to say. When we first found out about all of this, when from the very first moment of realizing that there are some lumps that need to be dealt with and first realization that this, these lumps are not just uh, random benign lumps, that they are actually indeed cancerous, um, The very first moment of that, when that struck us, we sat down on the bed and we just processed and we prayed and we specifically said, Lord, this situation is not what we had envisioned or what we wanted to end out 2023 or even go into 2024 or even have to go through this process of trying to make sense of how long will this be, how extensive will this be, what will this mean, how does this play out, so on and so forth. But it is nonetheless what we have in our laps right now. So the question shifted for us from, you know, uh, what if this is the case to, okay, this is the case. How do we make much of you and find your grace and trust you and look to ways in which you will use this for your own good glory? That became for us, the moment of where we began to shift. Now again, were there moments of doubt? Were there moments of pain? Were there moments of anguish? Were there moments of just like, this is really, really, really hard moments of waiting, moments between, you know, original, you know, biopsy to waiting for the doctor to get, absolutely all the above, crazy, chaotic, anxiety laden, all the above, all the above. But nonetheless, it was, None of that eroded the fact that our our deepest longing in our prayer was, God, we know somehow you will make and bring forth glory to your name through this. We don't know how, we don't know when, we don't know what ways, but we're confident that somehow, even in the midst of all this, you will do that. And this seems to be what Jesus is saying to his followers. Yes, this tragedy has befallen you, but it's 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 more than just what you're assuming. In other words, there's more to the story that you you can't even begin to imagine, that God is at work in the midst of this, and somehow he will bring forth his glory, his honor, his greatness will become seen through this. Don't let go of that, it would seem as if Jesus would be implying. Don't turn to any other narrative. Don't try to resist that. Just recognize that God is carrying you in the midst of this. You might not have all the answers to your questions. You might not see things happen in a movement or a way or in a manner that is, you know, suitable to your desires and time timeline. But nonetheless, in the midst of it all, I am working. My glory will be seen. in one of the most phenomenal things will end up taking place. He says, you know, death will basically be seen for what it really is. It's just, a, it's, a, it's a defeated foe in the very end. That's one of the reasons why I think Jesus actually in this particular context. He says, this thing is actually not unto death because Jesus is already knowing what he's about to do. He's going to rob the grave of a human being that it had absorbed into itself. And this is basically Jesus' way of saying, so um, that, that death in the end is not... Ultimate. Death is, here's a word for you, penultimate. Penultimate. It's it's a part of the landscape. It feels weighty. It is weighty. But it's not ultimate. I'm ultimate. And this seems to be where Jesus is going. And, And in the midst of this journey, it's like he's inviting these guys, trust me in this. Follow me. Watch me, because I got tricks up my sleeve that you can't even begin to imagine. Just follow me. Trust me. I'm in the midst of this. So number one, we see that Jesus speaks into the tragedy. Secondly, we see that Jesus actually loves those that are involved in the tragedy. Three different occasions in this entire story, and I don't, I don't know if you caught it or not. Um, it says, in verse 3, his sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So the sisters affirm, Jesus, you love Lazarus. In verse 5, it says then Jesus moved, uh, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. And then verse 30, the religious leaders or the Jews that were there, part of the car- other characters of the story, it says, see how he loved them. So the, the love of Jesus for these people is pro- profound. And one of the things I, I think with regard to this is that Jesus, as, as God, as the God-man, knew how to have good relationships. I mean, he loved people without them being weird or awkward. Yes, it could be said, Jesus loved Lazarus, a man. Not some weird, perverted way, not some sensual way, but as a friend, as another human being, as one that he can align himself with. Jesus loved Martha and Mary, not in a weird, perverted way, but in a relationship that can be like family. Jesus loved them in this particular context. And again, it's, it, we, for whatever reason, we live in this culture that takes this concept of friendship and it distorts it. And this is really unfortunate because I think when you read scripture and the story of Jesus and the relationship that he had with people, there's something genuinely pure and beautiful and good and wonderful about this. So it's just like, man, what would it look like if, you know, men and women could actually have friendships with each other without there being that kind of weird, awkward, like, are we dating now? or like, are we going to get married? Like, or again, it's not that there's any... Great place for marriage because marriage is awesome and highly recommend it. And having babies is awesome. Highly recommend it within the context of marriage. It's amazing. But at the same time, there's something also beautiful about not necessarily even having to be married and just be able to, you Now I again, a whole other context. I'm not even going to go down there. But if you're married, like, like if you're a dude, you probably should be not having good relationships, close relationships with other females that are not your wife for various reasons, which I'm not even going to go into right now. Just let your imagination think about it. But the point of the matter is it doesn't mean that you have to be rude or odd or awkward as well. There's a, there's a way of basically being able to have good relationships with others, um, and that probably raised more questions for you, so if you want to ask questions later, you can talk to me. But the point, I'm going to move on. But the point of the matter I want to make is this, is that Jesus had these great relationships with, with people, that he just, it says that he loved them. He was devoted to them. He was devoted to them. So, The third thing I want to take a look at in this particular story is that not only do we see that Jesus speaks to the tragedy, Jesus loves those that are involved in this tragedy, but then we also see that Jesus delays in the face of this tragedy. Now, again, take a look at verse 6. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed there two days longer in the place where he was. Again, this kind of raises the question, as I mentioned earlier when we were reading through this, why? Why does Jesus delay? I mean, wouldn't it make sense if someone came to you or you call 911, there's an emergency, and they're like, in two days, we'll be out there. You're like, wait, what? Is you not here? I said, emergency. This is a terrifying moment right now. And they come to Jesus. Jesus is not in any rush. He's not in any hurry. In fact, it almost seems like he is willfully, purposefully delaying. And this kind of plays into a narrative that is probably, for most of us, something of an annoyance. Like, why does it seem as if sometimes God is not on my time schedule? <laughs> Like when I expect something to be done right away because I feel this deep sense of urgency, why does it seem like God doesn't seem a deep sense of urgency? When I'm feeling a deep sense of anxiety and passion to get something done, why does it seem as if God is on his own time schedule? Because, I got something to tell you, write this down in your notes, because, you ready? He is on his own time schedule. (laughs) It's simply the way it is. God is not on your time schedule. Why? Because he is working everything according to his good. How? Because everything that he's doing is intended to bring him glory. That's exactly what Jesus said. That this is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. So, what seems to be, in the context of the story, that whatever for the glory of God means something needed to run its course in the case with Lazarus, meaning death, burial, stinketh and then resurrection or resuscitation, whatever word you want to choose, that he comes forth from the grave. But all of this was part of God's purpose and plan in order to bring himself this great glory. Now, I want to pause real quick and just carefully think about this. Everything that Jesus is up to in your life in my life is intended to bring him glory, honor, praise. I can't... Even say that from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the very intro of the entire story of all humanity, when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, everything that God gives them is intended for his glory, his own good purposes. But Adam and Eve, at some point, if you guys know the story, at some point they are deceived by way of the serpent or a secondary narrative that drops in on them, and they follow this secondary narrative, and this narrative causes them to distrust or doubt the intentions of God. Maybe God really doesn't know what he's up to. Maybe God God is actually really truly trying to withhold some form of goodness from me. Maybe God should be suspect or suspected of not delivering good to me. Maybe if there's good that's ultimately going to be procured in this life, it's respect. It's incumbent upon me to grab and take and move into those things. And this is where, at the very beginning of the entire biblical storyline, that all forms of evil begin to get unpacked within our lives and in this world. And what Jesus is doing is, is inviting people back to the basic trust relationship. Trust me. I'm working all this for my good. Yes, it might look like one thing. Yes, it might feel like another thing. Yes, it might feel like a death. Yes, it might feel like a sacrifice. Yes, this might feel like you're saying no to something. Yes, because all of that is true. But the glory that I'm bringing will make every sacrifice you've ever made pale in comparison. Just pause and think about that. Every sacrifice you've ever had to make, Every time you've had a door shut in your face, every time you've had to deny yourself or your desires or your longings or your dreams, or every time you've had something that you've longed for ultimately crumble or fall apart, because you've trusted me, God would say, I promise you I will make it all worth it in the end. And this seems to be what Jesus is inviting them into. But the whole idea of God's delays seem to be part of the entire biblical narrative. I'll go through a handful of these and kind of wrap it up with the final... Verse. Uh, I think about Noah. He was asked by God, build this massive boat, you know, and it's going to flood the earth. And how many hundreds of years went by before this actual promise came into being, right? Um, How many times did Noah have to deal with people mocking him, shaming him, making him look like an absolute fool of a human being? How many times did that happen? How many times would you imagine being in Noah's sandals. Like, God, you promised this was going to happen, and how come you've not followed through on your promise? In the meantime, I feel like a fool with all these people mocking me building this massive boat in the middle of a desert. But we know the end of the story, right? God was delaying for whatever reason. Why? We don't have any clue. Sometimes there's secrets that God just simply won't tell you. I think of the people of Israel. God tells them, I'm going to deliver you. So for many, many, many years, they are under the yoke of oppression from a horrible pagan figurehead, Pharaoh. And ultimately, as a result of that, they cry out to God, and God delivers them. But this takes a long process of God raising up Moses to ultimately be this deliverer. But then ultimately at the end, when in fact, the story is kind of fascinating, when God brings the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he leads them to a place where on One side is a mountain. The other side is a mountain. In front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them is the imposing army. So it would look like God literally led them into a dead end. That's what you think. That's what you read the rest of the story. God parts the Red Sea. This is the story. This is amazing. Does God know what he's doing? Apparently. Did the Israelites know what God was doing? No. Did Moses know what God was doing? Absolutely not. But God knew what God was doing. And it was all intended for God's great glory. I think of the story of Job. Again, been reading through the book of Job, this final of the year, 2023. And it's been just another one of those reminders. Like Job's anguish and tragedy and hardship lasted a very long time but he, the entire book is really all about him processing, trying to make sense of you know, why does suffering happen, and his friends kind of popping in, and like, the reason why this is happening, Job, is because you're not really a righteous dude. Everyone thinks you're righteous, but you're really not righteous. You're just, you just have dubious intentions and heart towards God, and, and everybody's kind of weighing in on Job's problems in his life, but at the end of the day, the book of Job's pretty clear. Like, Job is actually a righteous man. Says who? God. <laughs> that Job did nothing wrong, and all those reasons that we oftentimes try to discern, try to figure out why evil fell upon another person, oftentimes are fallacious. I mean, of course, there are things that maybe you can do in your life as a result of sin that brings consequences, that happens. What you sow is what you, what you reap is what you sow. That oftentimes is a part of the place. But in this particular context with Job, what happened in Job's life was not a result of anything he did. It was something that God allowed Job to go through, ultimately at the end, to show Job how great and glorious God truly is. And then lastly, David in Psalm 40 is one of my favorite psalms where David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. If you're familiar with you too, you know the great songs, one of the greatest songs of all time. Uh, He says this, but listen to Psalm 40 verse four. It says, blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. So in this heart of this little psalm, David is remembering, like, God, I trusted you. I didn't have a whole lot of evidence, but I trusted you. I knew that somehow you're going to bring me through this. And he does. God carries him. Are there occasions where how we expect or think certain things that happen and transpire uh, don't go the way that we expect? Of course. We live in a really broken world. Again, we could have gotten back from the pathology report. Thursday was very, very stressful. Waking up in the morning, having some time of conversation with my wife, processing. I can tell she was like not doing good, and you know I'm like, "Are you okay?" She's like, "I'm pretty nervous." Like, <laughs> dumb me. Um, like, why? Well, what if the pathology report comes back negative or like positive and there's something worse? I'm like, "Oh yeah, you're right." Um, and it just brought me into this world of like, "Oh yeah, there's still potential." another fork ahead of us that we may end up having to cross that might not be the end of what we thought was, or at least what I thought was the end, um, that there may be more to come, more to follow. And again, look, you know, five years might come by and, you know, I could be diagnosed with something, she could be diagnosed. Look, at the end of the day, we're not given these guarantees in this life. Following Jesus is not a guarantee that somehow you're going to, like, outflank suffering or pain or tragedy. But what we are promised is a God that's there with us in the midst of that. And that brings me to the very last thing, is that we see that verse, the, the final one of verse seven, that Jesus ultimately works in the midst of this tragedy. It says, and then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea, and he's gonna make this little story of like, during the day, you know, that which is with, done within a day is done in the context of work, and that which is at night, people stumble, but the point that seems to be being made here is that Jesus is saying, during the day, is when you work at night is when work stops but the point that Jesus seems to be making is that it's still day i'm still working in other words i'm still doing things you might not see it you might not understand it you might not comprehend it you might not even you might not even agree with it but i'm still nonetheless working and that gives me hope because even in the midst of a very 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 unpredictable world in which we live in with unpredictable circumstances guys it's not lost to me we're entering the 2024. And it's not lost to me that this is an election year. It's not lost to me that who knows what the heck will happen by November. None of this is lost to me. Things might look very differently in nine to ten months. And all of those comforts that we have been enjoying and might be radically different. I'm not trying to speak doom and gloom, but the fact of the matter is, is that more so than ever before, Security, peace, comfort is at a halt, all time fever pitch in our world in which we live in right now. There just seems like something about to give and break in the world in which we live in. But the question is for those of us that are seeking to be faithful to Jesus, we have a confidence that the same story that's taken place over the past 35, 4,000 years of people that have devoted themselves to God, God has always proven himself faithful. Time, and time again, even in the midst of tragedy. And we see that Jesus is still working. So what I want to deposit to you guys is for you to maybe think about what are those areas in your life right now where there's just a lot of pain, a lot of question, a lot of hurt, sorrow, grief, loss, things that you were once familiar with, things that were once part of your landscape, things that were part of your world are no longer the case, things that you have to grieve over and move on from. But nonetheless, it makes, doesn't make that transition any less difficult. But nonetheless, what this story, I think, tells us is that we have a God that's very well aware as to the circumstances and the tragedy and the suffering that we find ourselves facing. Very well aware of it. So much so that Jesus actually has something to say. Jesus actually deeply loves you, even in the midst of this. And sometimes those delays that are there are all intended for God's purposes that are beyond our comprehension. But at the end of the day, we also realize that Jesus is still nonetheless working even now. So for some of you, you may need to really like, carefully think about this. And maybe you need to say it like, to, to yourself in a moment of prayer and silence. It's like, God, you now are working. I might not see it. I might not feel it. Might not even be aware of it. Might not even be cognizant of it. But you, nonetheless, are working. So that's the hope that we tether ourselves to. It's not just a highly personalized hope. This is the hope that has been given to the family of God. We show up here, 2024, in San Luis Obispo, this amazing city in California. I think we'd argue probably saying it may be even the best city in California, but I'm a little bit biased. But nonetheless, we're part of this broader family. Multitudes of multitudes of people on this globe throughout all history that have found Yahweh God faithful. I'm um, reminded the book of Revelation where it says the angel shows up and John, who wrote this story that we just read here, sees or hears this thunderous roar of multitudes upon multitudes of every nation, tribe, and tongue, declaring, proclaiming, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Because he has carried us, even though we have died and suffered martyrdom and had our robes stained in blood, he has given us new linen, that represent righteousness, that we don't deserve, we didn't buy it, we couldn't earn it, but he, by his goodness and grace and kindness, has secured it for us. My hope for you this moment would be to see yourself in the midst of that multitude of people, one day, around the throne of God, declaring, shouting boldly the praises of the one who is worthy. I want to invite you now to stand, I want to pray over us, we're going to finish with a song of just declaring God's goodness. So as we pray, I want to invite you, to just maybe just bow your heads, close your eyes, and in this moment, I want you to just think right now, what are those areas of hardship, questions, suffering, maybe delayed desires? Maybe you have desires in your heart, but for whatever reason, there's just been a delay process put on. It feels like everything is just, the pause button has been hit. Maybe because it has. Maybe because it has been hit. But the thing I want you to think about is in the midst of that, what is God calling you into? What's the Spirit speaking to you? What's God inviting you to lay a hold of? What truth is God calling you to say, just trust me, I'm with you. I'm gonna pray, and as we pray, and as we finish with song, just declare the praises of God in this place. So, Father, right now, as we, in this room, just reflect upon who you are, your goodness, our need, your protection, our pain, our tragedy, your triumph, God, whatever it is, we just want, in this moment, to declare the praises of him who alone is worthy. So even now, God, we just speak forth, we sing forth, we affirm, God, the fact that we love you because we know that you first loved us. So let's sing again.